In August of 2014, when I was serving as a young Area 70, I received an assignment to a stake reorganization in Odessa, Texas. A stake reorganization is a stake conference in which a new stake presidency is called. I was to be the junior companion to Elder Dale G. Renland, a General Authority 70 at the time. I knew little about Elder Renland then, but learned that before his call to full-time church service, he was a doctor, a cardiologist actually, who specialized in heart failure and heart transplantation. He was also a professor at the University of Utah Medical School and served as the medical director of the Utah Cardiac Transplant Program. In other words, he's brilliant. At the time of that state conference, Elder Renlund had just recently returned to church headquarters after serving as the area president in the Africa Southeast area. I cannot begin to express how delightful that weekend was. I learned so much from Elder Renlund. My experience with him has greatly influenced my personal ministry. But what I remember the most is somehow I felt better about myself after having spent time with him. About a year after that assignment with him in Texas, in October 2015, he was called to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. I could not have been more thrilled or less surprised. Some people have to grow into their calls, but it seemed to me that Elder Renland was born to be an apostle. In his first address as an apostle, he said, to effectively serve others, we must see them through a parent's eyes, through Heavenly Father's eyes. In every interaction I have had with Elder Renlund, I have always felt that he has looked for the best in me. Not long after his call to the Twelve, Elder Renlund came to Tennessee, and once again I was assigned to be his junior companion. This time his wife, Sister Ruth Renlund, came with him. Sister Renlund is both talented and credentialed. She graduated from the University of Maryland School of Law with her Juris Doctorate. She practiced law at the Utah Attorney's General Office for three years and then joined a law firm in Salt Lake City where she practiced for 20 years. She was president of the law firm when Elder Renlund was called to be a general authority and was also the first female president of the Utah Trial Lawyers Association. She is also brilliant. But most importantly, Sister Meredith and I found her to be warm, engaging, and a master teacher filled with the Spirit. Sister Meredith and I immediately fell in love with Sister Renlund. Fast forward about five years, Sister Meredith and I were on a mission tour back in the same part of Tennessee and met with a group of stake presidents and their wives. One of the wives told us that the sisters still talk about that visit with Sister Renlund. And then she told us that one sister who attended that meeting, who was pregnant at the time, was so touched by Sister Renlund's presence and teachings that when her daughter was born, she named her Ruth after Sister Renlund. So somewhere in West Tennessee, there's a seven-year-old girl running around named Ruth after Sister Renlund. Do you remember when President Nelson taught us the following? The Savior's message is clear. His true disciples build, lift, encourage, persuade, and inspire. Both Elder and Sister Renlund epitomized that truth, and we are so blessed to have them here with us today. Brothers and sisters, thank you for being here. Thank you for your faith and faithfulness. You're the ones who make BYU-Idaho different. Because of that faith, because of your devotion, and because of who you are and who you're trying to become. I'm very grateful to be here with 
present Sister Meredith, they have over years exerted a Christ-like influence on me that just motivates me to want to be a better person. And that Christ-like influence comes because they're such great disciples of the Savior. I'm grateful to be with my wife, in large part because people like me better if they've met her first. <laughs> a year ago, I had an assignment to uh, dedicate the temple in Belém, Brazil. And so I thought I'd learn a few words of Portuguese. And I found it uh, challenging. How many in here speak Portuguese? Just raise your hand. Anybody? We have a few. This is great. So one thing I learned is that when an R is at the beginning of the word, it's pronounced as a guttural H. So that Elder Suarez's wife's name, Rosana, is pronounced Josana. And my wife's name, Ruth, is pronounced Hoochie. <laughs> I called her that once. <laughs> it should come as no surprise, though, that our saints in Brazil refer to our prophet as President Hustle Emmy Nelson. And that hustle is exactly what President Nelson does. He, and he motivates others. So even when he was having his back issue, he still tries so desperately to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And he motivates those around him to do the same. I do pray that the Holy Ghost will be with us as we discuss some things tonight. The phrase covenant path refers to a series of covenants through which we come unto Christ and connect to Him and to our Heavenly Father. The connection is unique because we choose to be united with them by covenant and they with us. God intended for covenants to be a critical part of our lives. The covenants God established were not whimsical or capricious but were based on eternal, unchanging law. He knew that there was only one way to return to Him, and He designated it as the covenant path. The covenants God specifies are non-negotiable and transform, save, and exalt us. We make these covenants by participating in priesthood ordinances and promising to do what God asks us to do. In return, God guarantees us certain blessings. A covenant is a pledge that we should prepare for, clearly understand, and absolutely honor. We make a covenant only when we intend to commit ourselves quite exceptionally to fulfilling it. For everyone, the covenant path starts with the covenant of baptism, followed by the covenants of the temple endowment which encompasses five covenants. These five covenants, however, are not separable. You can't choose to make a subset of the five. You make all five or none. The final covenant we make with God in the temple is the one that's made 
when a man and a woman are sealed together in the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. Now, we may ask, why are multiple covenants needed? It's because the multiple covenants are not only sequential, but are also additive and even synergistic in our relationship with God. Each covenant adds a bond, drawing us closer to and strengthening our connection to God. To explore the sequential and synergistic nature of covenantal bonds, let's consider two examples from the physical world. First, forming chemical bonds between elements, and second, the effect of risk factors in predicting negative outcomes. I realize that this will take all of us into beginning chemistry and statistics courses. Some of us will experience a sense of nostalgia, and others of us will develop or redevelop hives. <laughs> In beginning chemistry, <laughs> just relax. It'll be okay. In beginning chemistry, we learn that elements interact based on the way their outermost shell of electrons is constituted. This determines, for instance, whether an element is likely to make a single, double, or triple bond, or no bond at all. Shown are depictions of two fluorine atoms, with F being their symbol. Each fluorine atom seeks to make one bond. To achieve this, two atoms share one pair of electrons, creating an F2 molecule with a single bond between them. Two oxygen atoms are also depicted using the symbol O. Each oxygen atom seeks to make two bonds. To achieve this, two atoms share two pairs of electrons, creating an O2 molecule with a double bond between them. Now look at the two nitrogen atoms, depicted using the symbol N. Each nitrogen atom seeks to make three bonds. To achieve this, two atoms share three pairs of electrons, creating an N2 molecule with a triple bond between them. Now this slide illustrates the single bond length of F2. The bond length, or the distance between the fluorine atoms, is 1.44. Don't worry about the units. <laughs> this slide shows the double bond length for O2. The distance between the oxygen atoms is 1.16, shorter than for that of F2. And this slide shows the triple bond length for N2. The distance between the nitrogen atoms is 1.09, even shorter than that for O2. As the number of bonds increases from single to double to triple, the bond length shortens. This means that the two atoms are closer to each other. The two nitrogen atoms are 25% closer than the fluorine atoms and the oxygen atoms with a double bond are intermediate 
in bond length compared to the other two. Now, shown are the bond strengths of these elements when they're in gas form. The bond strength is the amount of energy necessary to break the bonds in a specified amount of gas. As the number of bonds increases from single to triple, the strength of the bond between the two atoms increases. It takes three times more energy to break the double bond of an O2 molecule than the single bond of an F2 molecule. And it takes six times more energy to break the triple bond of an N2 molecule than the single bond of an F2 molecule. F2 with a single bond is highly reactive with other elements and compounds. Stated differently, fluorine atoms in F2 easily break their bond. On the other hand, N2 is very unreactive compared with fluorine gas. O2 is moderately reactive, intermediate between F2 and N2. In other words, the risk is low that N2 will break its bonds. The risk is greater that O2 will break its bonds, and greater yet with F2. So stow that away, and now we'll move to statistics. Talking about risk obviously involves a discussion of probability. And to avoid discussing probability and risk in abstract, let me discuss risk factors in the context of heart disease. Sometimes knowing that you have a risk factor helps you to either modify or mitigate the risk in some way. Risk factors for having a heart attack include being male, growing older, tobacco use, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity, high blood sugar, and a family history of heart attacks. Now, shown in yellow are the risk factors I can't do anything about. <laughs> I'm male. I'm not going to do anything about that. I'm 70 years old, and I'm growing older. I can't do anything about that, and I don't like the alternative. <laughs> My father had a heart attack at age 77. I can't choose healthier parents. However, if I'm wise, I control the things I can control to minimize my risk of having a heart attack. So I don't smoke. I monitor my blood pressure, I treat my high cholesterol, I try to maintain ideal body weight, and I monitor my blood sugar as directed by a physician. Risk factors, though, are not determinative. Even a person with multiple cardiovascular risk factors can mitigate the risk by taking appropriate measures. I'm in better cardiovascular health than some who have fewer risk factors than I, because what I've done, what I can do to mitigate those risk factors. And there are those who have better cardiovascular health than I have, even though they have more risk factors. Even those with no risk factors for a heart attack have heart attacks. In fact, the known risk factors account for only 50% 
of the reasons for having heart attacks. Not having a risk factor doesn't mean we're safe. It simply means we're safer than we otherwise would be. So stow that statistic stuff elsewhere in your brain. Now that we've briefly reviewed chemical bonds and risk factors, let's get back to the effect that making multiple covenants can have. When we make the first covenant, baptism, we form a bond with God. But we may, nonetheless, be prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love and break that bond. When we make two covenants, baptism and the endowment, grouping the five covenants in the endowment as one for simplicity, we may be less prone to wander. And when we make three covenants, adding sealing to a spouse, we may further decrease our propensity to wander, to leave the God we love. Making multiple covenants along the covenant path helps us mature in our discipleship. In May 2022, President Russell M. Nelson suggested that we deepen our relationship with God when we make multiple covenants. He said, God has a special love for each person who makes a covenant with him in the waters of baptism, and that divine love deepens as additional covenants are made and faithfully kept. The deepening of divine love means that we develop a stronger and closer connection to God through those multiple covenants. Making and keeping multiple covenants doesn't mean that we face fewer challenges in life, but it does mean that when we confront these challenges, there's a decreased likelihood of distancing ourselves from God. President Nelson concluded his statement by promising, then, at the end of mortal life, precious is the reunion of each covenant child with our Heavenly Father. Baptism is the first covenant that everyone makes on the covenant path. The baptismal covenant is a public witness to Heavenly Father of three specific commitments, to serve God, to keep His commandments, and to be willing to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ. The other facets that are frequently mentioned, that we bear one another's burdens, mourn with those that mourn, and comfort those that are in need of comfort, are fruits of making the covenant rather than part of the actual covenant. These facets are important, though, because they are what a converted soul would naturally do. The next covenant that everyone makes on the covenant path is the endowment. As previously mentioned, the endowment consists of five inseparable covenants. As I review each, as outlined in the General Handbook, available in the Gospel Library app, see how they align with and reinforce aspects of the baptismal covenant. In the endowment, we first covenant to live the law of obedience. This means that we strive to keep Heavenly Father's commandments. It aligns squarely under the baptismal covenant promise to keep God's commandments. Second, we covenant to obey the law of sacrifice. This means sacrificing to support the Lord's work and to repent 
with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. The law of sacrifice aligns with the baptismal promises to serve God and keep His commandments. Additionally, sacrifice and repentance are key aspects of taking on the name of Jesus Christ. Third in the endowment, we covenant to obey the law of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this in part by living the doctrine of Christ, which is central to the purpose of life. This includes making covenants with God by receiving the ordinances of salvation and exaltation and keeping those covenants throughout our lives. Obeying the law of the gospel of Jesus Christ also includes striving to live the two great commandments, to love God and neighbor. The commitments associated with living the law of the gospel of Jesus Christ align with all three aspects of the baptismal covenant, to serve God, to keep His commandments, and to be willing to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ. Fourth, in the endowment, we covenant to keep God's law of chastity. This means abstaining from sexual relations outside of a legal marriage between a man and a woman. Marriage was intended by God to mean the complete merger of a man and a woman, their hearts, hopes, lives, love, family, future, everything, to be one flesh in their life together. We can't achieve the kind of life our Heavenly Father enjoys without a complete commitment to fidelity within a marriage to our husband or wife according to God's plan. The law of chastity aligns with the aspect of the baptismal covenant to keep God's commandments. Fifth, we covenant to keep the law of consecration. This means that we dedicate ourselves and everything the Lord blesses us with to build up His Church. This covenant is important because the keys of the Holy Priesthood were restored so that priesthood ordinances can be performed, allowing us to make covenants with God. It's only through the Church that this can be done for God's children on both sides of the veil. Keeping this covenant pledges our support to God's work. The covenant to live the law of consecration clearly aligns with the aspect of the baptismal covenant to serve God. Additionally, consecration is a covenant that we will permanently maintain a mightily changed heart and strive to have Christ's image in our countenance. This aligns, therefore, with taking on ourselves the name of Christ. Now the stage is set for the final covenant, the sealing ordinance wherein God seeks to bless us with all that He can, all that He has. In the sealing of a woman and a man together, they receive promises, they make a covenant with each other, and they make a covenant with God. To review the promises, let's go back thousands of years. Abraham received the gospel and entered into celestial marriage. Celestial marriage is the covenant of exaltation. Abraham received a promise that all the blessings of his covenants would be offered to his mortal posterity. Everyone who develops faith in Jesus Christ and embarks on the covenant path becomes Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When a man and a woman are sealed to each other 
they're promised these blessings, just as Abraham was. The blessings are glorious. They will come forth in the first resurrection, inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and powers, dominions, and they shall pass by the angels to their exaltation and glory in all things, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of the seeds forever and ever. Becoming like the Savior leads to exaltation, which is the highest state of happiness and glory in the celestial kingdom. In thinking about the sealing of a husband and wife, this African proverb comes to mind. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. God intends for us to go far into and throughout eternity together. During the sealing, a woman makes a covenant with her husband and a man makes a covenant with his wife. The tasks of mortality become joint. Husband and wife both enter an order of the priesthood that neither could enter singly and that's necessary to enter that highest degree of the celestial kingdom. They serve each other and their children and thereby serve God. As a man and a woman are sealed, they covenant with God to keep all the commandments related to marriage in the new and everlasting covenant. This sealing covenant with God aligns with all three aspects of the baptismal covenant. As we look at the elements of the endowment and the sealing, we see that they align with and reinforce all aspects of the baptismal covenant to serve God, to keep His commandments, and to be willing to take on the name of Jesus Christ. As we would expect, the aspects of the baptismal covenant and the elements of the endowment are all overlapping and mutually reinforcing. Covenantal bonds are not forced or compelled even after we choose to make them. Agency remains operative. Being bound to the Savior doesn't mean that we're enslaved, coerced, shackled, or under compulsion. We're free to break our covenants and altogether turn from them, but the consequences are dire. In the covalent bond between two atoms, the bond occurs because the atoms share a pair of electrons. In a similar way, when we make a covenantal bond with God, we share a covenant with Him. We experience and participate together in the covenant. This is also true of a woman and a man when they're sealed. They make a covenant with each other. I believe it's misleading to think that one is bound to the other for eternity. They share and experience the covenant together. Agency is an overriding component of eternal marriage. As President Dallin H. Oaks said in General Conference, we also know that God will force no one into a sealing relationship against his or her will. The blessings of a sealed relationship are assured for all who keep their covenants, but never by forcing a sealed relationship on another person who is unworthy or unwilling. 
No one will be forced to live in a marriage they do not choose or accept. Thus, after this life, if a woman no longer desires to be with her husband, she won't be forced to be with him. Like multiple chemical bonds, multiple covenants draw us closer to God and strengthen our connection to Him. The purpose of these bonds is to help us become more converted, faithful, and committed disciples of Jesus Christ. My personal experience suggests that, over time, the adults who have been baptized, endowed, and sealed to a spouse are the most likely to continue to maintain and deepen their discipleship along the covenant path. Less likely to do so are adults who have been baptized and endowed but aren't sealed to a spouse. Least likely to maintain and deepen their discipleship over time are the adults who have been baptized but are not endowed. We can consider that not being endowed is a risk factor for weakening discipleship to the Savior over time. Similarly, not being sealed to a spouse is a risk factor for weakening discipleship for someone who is endowed. Please remember, though, that risk factors are not determinative. You and I know individuals who have not been endowed and who are remarkably faithful disciples of Christ. And we know those who have been sealed to a spouse who are not. Faithfulness is an individual choice about how we live the covenants we've made. However, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have some invitations for each of you. My invitation for those who have been baptized but are not yet endowed is that you prepare for and receive your endowment. The decision to receive the endowment is personal and should be made prayerfully. This doesn't depend on anyone else's agency, just yours. Nor is it the role of anyone else, priesthood and organizational leaders, friends and peer groups, family, or me, to decide this for you or unduly influence you to do so. For most of you in this group listening to me today, you meet all the criteria to be endowed if you feel a desire to receive and honor sacred temple covenants throughout your lives. Until you're ready, continue to prepare. This includes qualifying for and using a temple recommend for proxy baptisms and confirmations in the temple and doing family history work. Also, focus intently on the covenant you have made. Conscientiously prepare for and worthily partake of the sacrament weekly. If you choose to miss sacrament meeting when you could attend, you place yourself in spiritual jeopardy. Use your agency righteously and continue to faithfully live the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's turn to those who have been baptized and endowed but are not sealed to a spouse. We all know that being sealed to a spouse involves someone else's agency. You don't determine this step solely on your own. My invitation focuses on what you can do.
If being sealed to a spouse is not yet your blessing, to the extent that it involves your agency, don't delay taking advantage of your opportunities. Don't close the door to the possibility. President Dallin H. Oaks taught in May 2023, a loving Heavenly Father has a plan for his young adults, and part of that plan is marriage and children. We counsel you to channel your associations with the opposite sex into dating patterns that have the potential to mature into marriage. Remember, though, that eternal life is not simply a question of current marital status, but of discipleship, that is, being valiant in the testimony of Jesus. You receive access to the grace of Christ through obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Additionally, I invite you to focus on the covenants you've made. Go to the temple often and participate in family history work. Conscientiously prepare for and worthily partake of the sacrament weekly. As you do, you will strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ. To those who are never sealed to a spouse in this life, consider this comforting promise made by President Lorenzo Snow in 1899 in St. George, Utah. Speaking of unmarried women, he stated that there seems to be considerable lamentation in regard to this condition. There is no need of this particularly, but some very foolish doctrine has been presented to some of the sisters in regard to this and other things of a kindred nation, nature. There is no Latter-day Saint who dies after having lived a faithful life, who will lose anything because of having failed to do certain things when opportunities were not furnished him or her. They will have all the blessings, exaltation, and glory that any man or woman will have who had this opportunity. They will have the means furnished them by which they can secure all the blessings necessary for persons in the married condition. Brothers and sisters, I feel compelled to add that you should not obsess about whether you had the opportunity to be sealed to a spouse and missed it. Don't second-guess yourself. God's grace is sufficient for all. Nothing you have or have not done is beyond the reach of Christ's infinite and eternal sacrifice. For those who have been sealed to a spouse, please note that this sealing is a milestone, but not a bookend in your life. You need to press forward and focus on the covenants you have made, just as I have encouraged the others to do, conscientiously preparing for and worthily partaking the sacrament, worshiping in the temple, and doing family history work. In addition, my invitation is that you seek to become a better spouse and parent by acquiring Christ-like attributes. Become the spouse your spouse deserves. Become the parent your children deserve. Let the multiple covenants draw you closer to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ and strengthen your covenantal bonds with them. Then heed the Savior's caution. But there is a possibility that man may fall from grace and depart from the living God. Therefore, 
Let the church take heed and pray always, lest they fall into temptation. Yea, and even let those who are sanctified take heed also. To avoid falling from grace and departing from the living God, we're wise to remember and heed these words by King Benjamin. I would desire that you should consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. For behold, they're blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they're received into heaven, that thereby they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. This is most likely to happen when we seek to make multiple covenants with God and keep them. Heavenly Father's plan allows each of us to choose how we will live here on earth and where we will live forever. The choice, though, is ours to make. As President Nelson said in General Conference, your choices today will determine three things, where you will live throughout all eternity, the kind of body with which you will be resurrected, and those with whom you will live forever. So think celestial. God established covenants to bless us. That's the covenant path. God has given us multiple covenants to help us, not to condemn us. Focusing intently on the covenants we have made and preparing for the next one is the best way to prepare to receive all that Heavenly Father has. It is how we think celestial. My dear brothers and sisters, I know that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ. He is your kind, wise, heavenly friend. He's your Savior. He's my Savior. He's your Redeemer and my Redeemer. And I absolutely know this. I know that Joseph saw what he said he saw that day in 1820. He saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ along with God, our eternal Father. Keys have been restored to earth to help us get on and stay on the covenant path and build sequentially, additively, and synergistically to draw us closer to God and to strengthen our relationship with Him and our Savior. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.